Hi, everybody. This is Josh Jelinski, the financial quarterback. And we're with George Gammon, macro investing and personal finance expert of georgegammon.com and rebel capitalist. George, welcome to the financial quarterback. Hey, thanks for having me. And thanks for coming on. So your overall goal is to help people build and protect wealth via investing and real estate. You're an entrepreneur. So talk to me about, you know, what prompted that journey? Because I know you sold the company when you were 38. So I want to hear kind of what's your origin story in personal finance? Yeah, there's been quite an evolution since uh, even that bio, honestly. So I retired in 2012, entrepreneur for many years. And in 2012, I didn't know the very the first thing about macroeconomics or investing or finance. I didn't know what a yield curve was. I didn't know what the Federal Reserve was. Uh, just absolutely nothing. But uh, as an entrepreneur, you kind of have maybe a little bit too much confidence in your own skill set. So I didn't want to delegate my financial future to uh, someone else. I wanted to take control of that. So I figured I needed to understand a little bit about markets. So I started studying. And one of the first things I came across was Milton Friedman's Free to Choose series that he did way, 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 way back on PBS. I think it was the late 1970s or early 1980s. That really resonated with me. So he became kind of my favorite economist, if you will. And then I started listening to Thomas Sowell, which was a student of his. And then from there, I started getting into and in, in, into the content of investors that kind of had a similar worldview. So guys like Jim Rogers, Jim Grant, Doug Casey, Rick Rule, Peter Schiff, just to name a few. And uh, I, I really got obsessed with it, quite frankly. And uh, I, I, my favorite out of all of them was Jim Rogers. And he always said, you got to buy things when they're cheap and sell them when they're expensive. And that made a lot of sense. So the cheap thing at the time, and this was 2012, was real estate. And so I pretty much went in head first with real estate uh, because I wanted to follow the mantra of Jim Rogers, right? <laughs> and uh, I, I did pretty well. I was able to take my skill set as an entrepreneur, just managing people and solving problems and whatnot, and apply that to real estate. And at the time, the banks, as you guys can probably remember, were just giving away houses. I mean, it was unbelievable the out-of-pocket costs that I would have relative to the rents that I was receiving. Uh, as an example, in Kansas City, where I started investing, I could buy a house from a bank uh, in a nice neighborhood. This is not like a Section 8 house or something. Uh, three bed, two bath, maybe 1,200 square feet for literally $50,000. And I'd put about twenty five into it. And then you'd have a great, fantastic rental property in an awesome neighborhood, great school district. And I'd rent that out for 1100 And I, you could do that all day long. Now, of course, times have, have changed significantly. But that's what really got me into investing. That was my start. And then I stuck with real estate. I started investing overseas because I had uh, made a little bit of money overseas as an entrepreneur. So I was very comfortable doing business in other countries. And then in uh, fast forward to 2019, I had been investing quite extensively in South America, more specifically Colombia, Medellin, Colombia. And uh, I, believe it or not, did a TV show in Medellin, Colombia in 2019, very similar to the HGTV shows that you see in the US. And uh, then, I, but I was the executive producer, I was the director, <clears throat> excuse me, I was in the show, and I had to hire the whole crew to actually produce it. And then I had a kind of a profit split with the local TV station. 
So we took a break after season one. We did 13 episodes and I wanted to keep the staff busy. So we started this YouTube channel, which initially to your earlier uh, bio there was about real estate investing because that's what I thought most people would want to watch on YouTube. And I wanted to keep, you know, it was kind of consistent with the theme of the TV show. So I thought it'd be an easy transition. But my passion was always macroeconomics. Always, always, always. Even while I was in So you real did estate. real estate to just make make a buck, but you really love the yeah. macroeconomics more. Exactly. That's that's a good way to put it. So uh, I started doing a couple videos on the YouTube channel around macro, but I didn't think anyone would watch them. I thought they'd only watch the real estate videos. And it turned out to be the opposite, which worked very, very well. The most popular videos were the ones that I was doing on macro. And that's what I was passionate about. That's why I like talking about. So I just kind of doubled and tripled down. Uh, we never went back to the TV show because YouTube was uh, a much better fit. And then I started the Rebel Capitalist Show, the podcast in 2020. And then I started uh, the Rebel Capitalist Channel. The U- that's the second YouTube channel in 2021. And then in 2021, we started Rebel Capitalist Live as well, which is the investment conference we now do annually. So that kind of gets us up to speed to where we are today. The two channels get about 5 million views per month. And uh, the podcast maybe gets a million downloads, something like that. Do you do all, uh, do you you go back to real estate at all or not really? I mean, I I knew of you through macroeconomic stuff. A lot of people on Twitter uh, or... I think I found out about you in like Bitcoin rooms on Clubhouse, like you were, you were followed. <laughs> I don't know. Did you, did you ever do Clubhouse back in the day? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was, boy, I tell you what, that was one of the best examples I've ever seen of hysteria in an asset bubble. Oh, yeah. And uh, going back to Jim Rogers. I think you uh, were he, in rooms with me, maybe even. It was like they do the don't you know, pump it up. <laughs> um, yeah. Maybe that was it. I would just try to go in there. And, uh, you know, I was always uh, a fan of Bitcoin. I still am. And uh, I think everyone should own it to have purchasing power outside of the system. But I would try to go in there and just be reasonable. And I would, the people would literally yell at me. Like, like I'd have people having like an emotional breakdown uh, just because, like, and I'm not joking. I'm not No, no, I know. Bitcoin Tina, right? Was, was he the one? Oh, he was one of them. He was one. Yeah, yeah there were a I, lot of remember, guys like that. Bitcoin Tina now no longer is not Bitcoin Tina. He's now just Tina. What happened oh, to that I, guy? That, I, that's a I classic case of hysteria. This guy was probably the guy yelling at you. If you went in and talked about any reasonable like diversification, macro diversification. Oh, I'm I'm the same way. I like Bitcoin as an asset class, kind of a hedge against the dollar. Or, or if you'd go, hey, I think you should have maybe 5% max your portfolio or 10% max, they would instantly start yelling at you, cursing at you. So well, they'd have an emotional breakdown. Someone would start crying, but like they'd just like freak out. Like if you said anything other than 100% of your portfolio should be in Bitcoin, in addition to that, you should mortgage your house to buy Bitcoin. In addition to that, you should max out every single credit card you have really? to buy Bitcoin. If you had a position, anything that varied from that at all, you would get the wrath of God, of the Bitcoin gods coming down on you. <laughs> That's when I knew that uh, there was some serious hysteria and you're most likely at a top in price. But that goes back to what Jim Rogers always said. And uh, 
the first time I heard him talk about this was in the Market Wizards books, the original one from Jack Schweiger. Oh, I think that's a great book. I, I actually I actually read some newsletter today that referenced that. Um, you know, that that's so wise. There's there's so many good lessons. Oh yeah. I mean, if 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 any of your listeners or viewers have not read that book, I think it's a series of three books that I would highly suggest they do so. But he talks about the concept of buying panic and selling hysteria. And uh, what we're talking about there with Clubhouse would be a perfect example of hysteria. And then buying panic, uh, a perfect example of that would be March of 2020, when everyone thought the world was coming to an end. I think it was April when oil got down to, what was it, negative $38 a barrel? That's panic. Uh, so those are the two extreme examples. One, you want to sell. That's hysteria. And uh, the second one, you want to buy. So what do you? we're going to get into all this stuff because I want to know about your journey. So what was the business you were in before this? So you were 38 soldier business for 24 million. What, what type of business was this? Oh, no, no, no. I didn't sell for 24 million. Oh, I didn't it even I sell it. I don't know. What I just kind of walked at. away from it. We were doing about 24 million in, in gross revenue. Okay. But uh, no, I never sold it. It was a convention business where we would host conventions at Disney World oh, in, cool. uh, or in, or in Orlando there. And we do it uh, two to three times a year. It's like a military operation because we'd have about 5,000 attendees, believe it or not. And so the Rebel Capital, it's very similar to the Rebel Capitalist Lives that I do now. In fact, it's identical, except for Rebel Capitalist Live, we'll have about 500 people. And for those, we'd have 5,000. Wow. <laughs> so logistically, it's a little different, but uh, the concept is the exact same. And, and what's the concept? Oh, it's just know. where, yeah, you have speakers and you have people that are notable within the industry that you have come into, uh, in this case, a hotel. And uh, it's a three to five day event. And, um, you know, the people are there to do workshops and to do breakouts and to meet with the, spe the speakers and whatnot. Uh, I didn't have any sponsors back then. And I maintain that same model today. Uh, and that's quite a bit different than the other conventions out there. Not that it's good or bad, but most of the other conventions have a, a lot of sponsorships and whatnot. For me, it's just speakers. So it's nice. So when you go to the Rebel Capitalist Live, it sort of reminds me of uh, my buddy John Malden's convention that he does. You're sort of bringing your A-team. People aren't paying to become speakers. So it, no, it no, gives no, no, this no. independence. That's nice. So when people... Yeah, it's just buddies of mine, like uh, Jeff Snyder. Uh, I mean, I've had yeah, Lynn we've had Alden. Jeff on a lot. We've had Jeff on Clubhouse and the Bitcoin people were literally trying. We would do these live rooms. We've got to do Twitter spaces with you. Because Twitter Spaces is not the same as Clubhouse. No, the, it's more rational. The beauty of Clubhouse was you could have a complete, like, know-nothing, and he would take on, like, we'd have these great guests, like Jeff Snyder, and then these people would be like, you know nothing. Um, and it actually brings, it's almost like a Jerry Springer quality to personal finance. So people were always into it. It, it was like riveting. Yeah. And Jeff would hold his own and he'd be like, no. And he would talk about this and that. And, um, and well, it's funny was, about saying, what's funny about saying Jeff knows nothing is he's literally a human encyclopedia. Well, Jeff would be like, <laughs> it's, it's the opposite. You know, <laughs> when they started taking Jeff down, they would be like, um, 
Jeff would be like, I was in Bitcoin before you were born or something like that. So Jeff, <laughs> to see Jeff, who's yours, like mild manner, he was getting a little angry. He was always professional, but it, it, it gave a great, like, it reminded me of like live because I, I grew up on AM radio and we okay. still have one of the biggest financial uh, AM radio sh- uh, financial shows in the country, financial quarterback on WOR. And it reminds me of like a, the beauty of AM radio where you could have like somebody call in and they could give you great feedback where Twitter's too like curated. You know, it's mm. like you and 10 of your buddies. So you get, you don't get that. I don't know. I don't find Twitter spaces to be as like riveting, like with, with clubhouse, you would not want to like leave. Cause there were people like call out Peter Schiff would pop in or Elon Musk. And those Bitcoin rooms would have like 60,000 people at its height. And you'd have yeah. major, uh, entrepreneurs, thought leaders like yourself, and and you have these regular people. And it would be funny to see who would become a character, you know, or who would be almost like a reality TV show. So, Yeah, you never know what to expect. It's like, it's like that car wreck that you just, you just have to watch. You can't look away. <laughs> yeah, you like, what is Bitcoin Tina going to do next? You know, I, um, but he actually, the one guy who would go into hysterics, he actually was a very intelligent man. He was just sort of bought into the hysteria. So what is, um, so you have this convention business, you have now Rebel Capitalist Live. That's awesome. What uh, prompted you to leave that business to go, you know, full-blown full Rebel Capitalist or whatever you call this phase of your life? Well, keep in mind, I didn't start the first YouTube channel until 2019. So there was seven years in there when I was just exclusively real estate and I wasn't doing anything online. I had no social media presence whatsoever. So uh, the rebel capitalist thing didn't really start until 2019, 2020. Uh, What made me leave is I got kind of burnt out and I decided I was going to take two or three months off. And after two or three months, I just decided that I just didn't want to go back. And um, I, I knew that I had enough savings to where if I invested it well and made a five or 6% return, that I would not have to go back to work again if I didn't want to. So that became kind of the next challenge for me. And that's funny. I was talking to do an interview with a guy who uh, does this I Take a Hike podcast. And that was sort of a similar journey. You know, he, he acquired a certain amount of net worth, 5%, kind of my freedom point, and then kind of found this uh, second love. So yeah, the thing cool. I really liked about real estate back then, in addition to the fact that it was, it was really cheap and there was a lot of panic, is uh, I just looked at my monthly expenses and said, okay, well, what do I need to live comfortably, you know, maintain my lifestyle? And uh, how much do I need to make sure that I'm not dipping into my savings? And it's pretty easy to come up with a number. And so if that's just, let's say, 10 grand a month, then you just, with rental properties, it's great, especially because I was buying one with cash, so I had no mortgage, so very little downside. And I just like, okay, how many properties do I need to buy to create 10000 or $15,000 a month in cash? And once I do that, then you're, you're good to go then you've got no concerns whatsoever. And that can buy you however much time you need to decide what you want to do next in life. 
So that was another reason why I got so involved with real estate in 2012. Man, have you, it's so funny. I got into real estate in 08 and in short sales before it was big. Mm. And I was a little, you know, like you're too early on a trend that that's got to be an investing lesson. I was too early. So I was calling these banks. There's a guy named Simon Miller. You maybe know the guy. So this guy was calling guys like you, people that he he found very rich. And he was like, you know, kind of he had this buying group. Say, there's going to be this wave of defaults and, you know, bank-owned properties. So yeah. you got to get into it. So I had some real estate millionaire, you know, school training. One of these like Robert Kiyosaki type guys. I was his financial advisor talking to them about tax planning and all kinds of like personal finance stuff. But it was just such a waste of my time because in 08, the banks weren't ready. They didn't say uncle yet. So we were trying to convince the banks, which if they would have listened to us at the time, they would maybe selling, what were they selling? Maybe selling properties for 10 cents on the dollar. Would that be fair? Oh, they would have got a much better deal if they would have sold in 2008 because the market didn't bottom until 2012. Exactly. So that was our, hey, sell us for 30 cents. So we were too early. And this, my personal finance business took off. My radio show took off. So, but I so saw the opportunity that you took advantage of. I bought a couple of properties, but not, you know, it was just, we were, we were adding, you know, 50 to 100 million a year in new revenue, in new uh, assets every year. So right. I just couldn't give that up because I'm a personal finance guy. My, uh, that's what I love more than anything. But it was funny. I was right place, right time, but a little early. And yeah. um, if I, only I had built some type of fund to buy real estate because I knew the properties, I knew the bank contacts. Um, well, a good friend of mine is uh, a former hedge fund manager a very famous guy. He used to be on CNBC all the time. And he now retired and moved to uh, St. Bart's. And he's good buddies with another ex-hedge fund manager friend of mine named Hugh Hendry. Uh, the, the first guy, I'm not going to mention who, who he is because he likes to maintain his privacy. But when I first met him, it was, it was very, very funny uh, because he had a fund that he set up specifically to buy real estate. But he's one of these hedge or was one of these hedge fund big shot guys, you know, like a John Paulson as an example, where a fund for him is not five hundred million. You know, a fund for him is is five billion. You know, <laughs> but, but I, I didn't know this. Uh, and I first met him at a dinner party over at Hughes' house when I went to St. Bart's at the end of twenty twenty, and uh, I didn't know who he was. He didn't really know who I was, but we started talking about real estate. And we had pretty much a similar conversation to the one that we just had. And I told him what I was doing in 2012. And he's like, wow. He goes, you know, that's incredible. I, I was doing the exact same thing. I was buying these single family homes and blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, oh, this is amazing. Wow. What a small world. And, uh, and he's like, well, yeah, this is, you know, we're just seeing eye to eye here and everything. And, you know, at the time I'm, I'm kind of thinking, you know, well, wow, maybe I'm, I'm at this guy's level, kind of getting a shot of, of ego there. Right. And I, I had in 2012, I purchased maybe, maybe 20 houses between 2012 and 2013. So he's like, well, how many houses did you buy? I'm like, ah, you know, about 20 or something like that. Thinking I'm a big shot. Right. And I go, well, how many houses did you buy? 
And he sits there and he's like, two thousand. Uh, yeah, he's like a thousand, like fifteen hundred, something like that. <laughs> you know, I was thinking I'm a big shot, and your pride just goes pew all the way down. And you get a big slice of humble pie. Hey, but twenty is is great. I mean, those were life changing numbers. Those houses you'll probably just hold forever, right? Make the income. No, I actually started selling sell them? them in 2018 and I was just selling them one by one and I ended up selling the last one in 2022. And that's another good lesson that goes straight back to Jim Rogers. And um, and also it goes back to my days playing blackjack and I was very lucky to kind of have a, a little bit of a history there. So I understood probabilities and I understood that the best way to have an edge is to make sure you're focusing on how well you play the game and not the specific results of your actions, right? So uh, taking that back to the philosophy there, buy cheap and sell expensive. When I bought those properties in 2012, I thought the market was going to continue to go down. I, I did not think that we were at a bottom. I thought we probably had about 10% more downside. And that was based on my research of Japan's real estate crash in the early 1990s, because they went down by about 55, 60%. At the time, we were down by like 45, 50. And then I also looked at a chart of real estate prices adjusted for inflation going all the way back to 1900. And you can see that it's very, very consistent. And uh, we are almost back down to that historic trend line, but we weren't there yet. I thought we could probably go back down below before we bounced. What, which chart? The Case Shiller or which one? Yeah, there's Case Shiller's one, but there's uh, based on the Case Shiller data, there's a few charts that go all the way back to 1900. And you can see that real estate really doesn't go up, it just goes up with the rate of inflation. So, which makes sense because it's just a derivative of pretty much interest rates and wages. So, uh, but then in early 2000 or late 1990s, you know, 99 or so, you can see the inflation adjusted curve prices just go parabolic, just go straight up to where it's, it's very, it's obviously uh, unusual looking at the long-term chart. So looking at that, you know, it was obvious that we were in a bubble, but you just didn't know kind of when we were going to crash. But that that's what I use as kind of like a measuring stick. But my whole point there is that I thought real estate when I was buying was going to continue to go down, but I still bought it. Uh, why? Just because it was cheap. So I'm not trying to time the bottom there. I'm just simply buying things when they're cheap, regardless of which direction I think the price is going to go. So I did the opposite in 2018 through 2022. Did I think the prices were still going to go up? Yeah, I thought there was a good chance, but that wasn't the question I was trying to answer. The only question I was trying to answer is, is, is it expensive? And if the answer is yes, then you sell, regardless of which direction you think the price is going to go. Because at the end of the day, the average investor, the professional investor for that matter, cannot time bottoms and tops. That, that's futile. So the only thing we do know definitively is if an asset is cheap or if it is expensive relative to its historic price adjusted for inflation. So a lot of people say, oh my gosh, George, don't you wish that you still had those those 20 homes or whatever it was uh, today because you had had so much more price appreciation? And I say, absolutely not, uh, because then I would have been breaking my own rules. And the way I measure success is not if I have a huge gain or loss or whatever, it's if I if I stick to the rules and I play the game well. And that's what goes back to blackjack. I always use the example of a buddy that doesn't know how to play. And let's say you go to Vegas and 
you've done, you've had some drinks or whatever, and uh, they're kind of drunk and they're, they've won like 10 hands in a row, let's say, and they've got a 19 and they're saying, you know, George, I feel hot. I'm going to hit on this 19. And you say, whoa, 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 time out there. That's not a good idea. And, uh, you know, you better slow your roll there. Like, oh, George, you don't know what you're talking about. You're too conservative. You and your stupid probabilities. And they go ahead and hit. Let's say they get a two and they get blackjack. So the question is, were they right or were they wrong? I would argue they're wrong, even though they won. Because if they do that over and over and over again, they're going to go bust because they have a negative edge, you see. So that's the best example that I can use as far as that overall investment philosophy that prompted me to buy in 2012 and start selling in 2018. I, I think if people, it would serve them well if they can avoid trying to answer the question, where's the price going? And, and, and exclude that from their thinking and just start and almost strictly focus on, is it cheap or is it expensive? No, I think that's, you know, we're kind of doing the personal finance journey while talking to somebody who's obviously successful. And there are so many good lessons from your life, rules-based. You know, it's funny, we have a rules-based financial planning program, even RAA. And I would say you're right. There's, there's always about, about a 99% satisfaction rate. But you know, when you have thousands of clients, you know, what that means is, you know, there's about 10 people you lose every year, you know, just due to attrition, not, and those are always the people that we kind of say it's a little different. They're greedy. They're too fearful or too greedy and they're not rules-based. And the way to kind of build your wealth, if you're hiring a financial planner or financial advisor is do they follow some type of rules-based approach for your money? whether it's mm -hmm. diversification, whether it's macro diversification, even tactical investing. A wise tactical money manager is not necessarily, they're trying to time the market, but probabilities, they're never going to get the top tick or the, or the bottom tick. It's about getting that middle part of the ride. So I think all these things are great personal lessons. And also, you could also argue that because you sold high 2018 to 2022, even though there was another, you know, parabolic increase to go. You had the energy and no stress to take the world by storm in 2020 with rebel capitalists. So like, for example, if, if I was like that, I, I was too busy managing money then. I didn't have, I knew mm -hmm. the opportunity. 2020 YouTube, it's like your success. A couple other guys, meet Kevin. There are guys who, who literally became like financial rock stars overnight. You're one of them because they were just on every day. And I remember I did a show on uh, PPP. I was a national PPP expert. Oh, okay. And I put a guy in the map, uh, J JJ, the CPA, great guy, great guest. You never get him. He was like a small town CPA from Edmond, Oklahoma. Nobody ever heard of the guy. But I had him on our show and then he just blew up. Like, Way more of a YouTube presence than me because I don't really, I mean, I'll do videos and I'm not, you know, I get to get tips from you how to become a YouTube sensation. But this was a guy just like working out of his, you know, phone, him and his girlfriend who ended up becoming his wife. During COVID, he would have these like tax alerts on PPP and literally nobody knew PPP. And I think Donald Trump and some of the Trump administration, as we've heard, like Anthony Scaramucci was a listener of my show. A lot of people... Mm. Uh, I think Trump listened because New York, you know, they listen to WR. Yeah, yeah. We would send, please, first round PPP. 
we would be like, Trump, you have to get this clarified. So I would go on, like kind of how your live streams for Rebel Capitalists on YouTube. I should have done it on YouTube too. But on radio, and we'd have people calling in, how, do, how does this PPP thing work? Nobody knew. And right. people say now it was ripe with fraud. I don't think it was really ripe with fraud. A lot of small business owners were wondering, should I lay off my employees? Or should I wait for this thing? So literally every weekend we would go on live, me and JJ, the CPA, and he became like a national expert in PPP. Mm. And we were reading the, the law and we just heard horror stories. So like I was the expert, right? Whatever, whatever that means, self-proclaimed expert. And PNC Bank didn't give me PPP. because. Mm. And then we, we, we got to learn more like you had to have 5 million in cash and to be a part of PNC private wealth to get their treatment. So then I found, but if you were with a small bank, like, uh, you know, XYZ local yokel bank, you know, sure, sure. Huntington Valley bank, uh, you know, whatever in Pennsylvania Silicon Valley bank. Yeah. Well, <laughs> but they would get, but you're probably right. They would give their clients preferential treatment. And um, a lot of these banks that were local got access because they didn't have to deal with the BS of the administrative bureaucracy. Mm. And it was kind of an interesting kind of right place, right time. But I, I would argue because you sold all this real estate, you were more focused on, you know, the YouTube success. So some yeah, of financial I mean, success even with that, is that not that about getting right. It's all about property management, as you know, but you're yeah. still having to manage the property manager. So it, it's not completely and totally passive. And that's one of the reasons why I'm not investing in real estate now, because the ROI just isn't there compared to producing content right now. And maybe that'll change in the future. I'm very open, uh, but not, not right now in the United States, because I don't think the prices, they're still obviously very, very expensive. So I'd wait for them to come back down. But uh, another tip is they don't just have to come back down in, in nominal prices. We could see nominal prices flatline or even go up, but just come down in, in real terms. I was doing a video earlier this morning on real estate, global real estate markets that were in a quote unquote bubble. And uh, one statistic that just completely blew me away was Stockholm, Sweden. Uh, the prices there are down 22% year over year, but that's adjusted for inflation. And so I think one of the big mistakes that most people make is they just look at prices, asset prices, like real estate in nominal terms. And they think, oh, we, you know, we've got no problem. The bubble is not popping or, you know, uh, we don't have any problem with prices. But when you adjust for inflation, you see that that equity that you have may be losing a substantial amount of purchasing power. And usually this is the way these things play out. I mean, you were in the game in 2008, as you were saying before. And remember back then, the uh, the entire U.S. market was not coming down. That was one of Ben Bernanke's arguments around subprime being contained. Remember, and those, well, we don't have to worry about mortgage-backed securities because it's, it's a combination of all these mortgages from across the United States. And it is true how some markets are going down slightly in nominal terms, but other markets are flat and other markets are still going up. And it's the exact same thing that you see right now. 
But uh, there are a lot of markets in the United States, even uh, based on that uh, chart that I was reading this morning, that have gone down in nominal terms. San Francisco would be one. I think Seattle, Boston, uh, the the coasts, uh, other than Miami, would fall into that category. But again, you've got to adjust for inflation because at the end of the day, it's all about purchasing power. And if we were to see prices go back down to the levels that they were in 2012 or 2013, not in nominal terms, but in real terms, then I would once again be chomping at the bit uh, to get involved in the in the U.S. real estate market. Um, but to your point, I'd have to now consider is that a good use of my time based on uh, the ROI with creating content? Now that's great. So what opportunities do you see? So what are the uh, panic markets you want to buy into right now? Commodities, commodities, commodities. I'm a firm believer that we've entered a commodity super cycle, which as you know, usually lasts about 15 years And I think it's all going to be driven by the supply side. You've got this ESG movement, and I won't comment on whether that's good or bad. I'll let your your viewers make their own decision. But the bottom line is what the ESG types focus on is the supply side of the equation. And uh, they think that's how we're going to transition into, let's say, green energy is just stop producing oil or stop producing that gas or coal or something like that. And what they fail to realize is the demand side of the equation is very inelastic. I always use this chart going back to the 1800s as far as energy use. And in the 1800s, the number one source of energy is like 95% was biofuels. So that would include like lumber and literally cow dung and whatnot, that that would be a biofuel. That was most basically all of the energy that we had available to us. But then we get coal, and then we get oil, and we get natural gas, and we get all these things that we know about today. But if you look back, even in 2023, we are using more biofuel today than what you did in 1850. We're using more coal today. We're using more lead today. All of these things that you would think are kind of antiquated, we're using more of them today than we ever have. So my point there is whenever we transition from one energy source to the next, that's, that's better for whatever reason, we never use less of the last energy source. We just use more energy in, in aggregate total. And that allows society and the standard of living to increase, it allows GDP to grow, and then you see a direct correlation with the overall population. So the, the point there is even if we do produce more wind and solar, we're likely not going to use less oil. If we did, then the overall standard of living globally would have to decrease. And although there's some people in the World Economic Forum that might think that's a good idea, I would argue these people in emerging markets, like Medellin, Colombia, where I'm right now, would argue that that's a bad idea, that they want their standard of living to increase, just like everyone else on the planet. So again, the main takeaway there is, I think in the future, we're going to have very tight supply. We already have very tight supply. But because of the political narrative, you're going to have even more uh, supply, not just shocks, but uh, less capital going into supply. And as you know, you can't just turn on more oil. 
You can't just turn on more natural gas. That takes a long time. You got to start investing now to reap the returns in 10 years or 15 years. So we've massively underinvested. And if you like the green energy stuff, the same holds true for copper. The same holds true for lithium or nickel. Look, even if you want to transition into an ESG world, the bottom line is we're going to have to dig more holes in the ground. We're just going to have to dig for different stuff. So so the, the politicians, they don't like digging holes in the ground, but if they want to achieve their objectives, we need more holes. Yeah, so we really need more uranium too. I mean, we're never going to meet their demands unless we go fully nuclear. That's right. And they don't really want to do that. And we've shut down all the nuclear plants. Yeah, I mean, so what that results in is Germany using more coal today than they ever have uh, in spite of their green movement. So my point there is I think this is going to be a, or could be a huge opportunity. So before we went live, we talked about the inversion of the curve. So the inversion of the curve 99% of the time means that you get a recession and not a soft landing, a hard landing. So if the yield curve is correct this time, and we have seen a bear steepener, which is very interesting if you want to dive into those details in a moment here, because we've never had a bear steepener that's uninverted the curve. We've had a disinversion of the curve from a bear steepener, but the uninversion has always come from a bull steepener, which would be a result of the Fed dropping rates because the stuff hits the fan. And assuming that plays out, in let's say 2024, that most likely puts enough downward pressure on commodity prices to make them very, very attractive for the next 10 or 15 years, assuming you agree with me and that you're going to continue to have this political attack against the supply side. Which commodities do you like? Oh, wow. All of them. I, I, I really like the ones that most people hate. So my favorite commodity would probably be coal. Uh, but I really like copper. I like, uh, you know, silver. I like lithium. I like the things that go into what you need to produce electric cars and whatnot. But just your basic stuff, you know, oil, natural gas, uh, coal would be my favorite. Do you like uranium or no? I do. I remember I I, I read, I I got to go back to my Gmail's email letters from Rick Rule. You mentioned some of your kind of early, we probably the same reading list, you know. But I heard his, he had, you know, very eloquent uh, newsletter. This was, I don't know, I want to say it was seven years ago on how uranium will enter some super cycle. It never really happened, but I still believe ultimately well, that uranium will go crazy, but maybe. I'm, yeah. And, and, and to be clear, uranium's really gone up yeah. over the last uh, three or four months. Yeah. After but I it's sold just it. In, in the baby after stages. I sold it, right. You know, for yeah. Well, I think with uranium, we're only an inning. Two. Like two or three. Yeah, I think uranium's going to have a big, big move. And um, I'm actually going to have dinner with Rick Thursday night in New Orleans. So I'm sure that'll be a topic of discussion. Yeah, I got to go back to my old... But I, I, he made this great case. I think it was after Fukushima that they're going to shut all these you know, nuclear plants down. They're going to shut it down. Then I think he predicted by about now we, we'd have to start going more nuclear. I mm. think eventually, I think what will happen is we haven't built the uranium infrastructure enough in the US and elsewhere. I see it with Tesla everywhere in the US. I've had more brownouts in New Jersey than ever before because everybody has a Tesla. So the amount of energy we're, we're taking from the grid. Yeah. So I think there's going to come a point where the rest of the US becomes like California, 
where they're rolling brownouts and, and people are just going to get I totally sick. agree. And people are going to get sick of it. I think it might be now like 2030, 2025. And then people will get so tired of these brownouts, that then you'll have pro-uranium sort of candidates pop up. And we'll have to have a uranium grid, a hydrogen grid. I mean, I'm all for fossil fuels too. I'm not against them, but um, I just think you have people who are kind of brainwashed one way. I think it's going to go. Yeah, well, that's absolutely my base case is that right now, politically, it may be a taboo subject, but just have people go through some brownouts, to your point, or be inconvenienced, or in other words, have their standard of living decrease and you're going to see that political narrative shift very, very quickly. And uh, we're probably not there yet, but you can kind of see it changing on the margin. I mean, if you look at some of the uh, rhetoric out of Europe, as an example, you see some of those politicians that were really kind of in that green camp starting to insinuate that maybe, just maybe, nuclear isn't that bad. And uh, the worst things get, which... I think they'll get pretty bad here as far as having an energy crisis due to these policies. Uh, the faster people will demand that politicians solve the problem. And that's kind of a no-brainer solution. One of the things I'm doing is I'm trying to convert all my all my buildings, my home, my, my commercial building to solar, get all the battery backups and the gas generator backups, because I think it's going to get so bad eventually where, you know, they're, where they're going to say, okay, we're going to shut you down for the next 12 hours. I mean, I, I think big government will eventually come to some strange solution. So there's going to be this interim period, sort of remind me of like COVID where we're in lines to get into Costco. I think there's going to be such a need. I, I think we have no clue the carnage that I have a Tesla, so I, I'm, I'm part to blame for the problem. But all these things taking from the grid, it's just... Talk to my friends from California and they're like, oh, we have brownouts. It's kind of a normal thing. And but I, I think um get that Generac generator and have the Tesla power wall because you might need both. <laughs> yeah. And from an investment standpoint, you just got to think about how that translates into commodity prices and which commodities. You know, I was reading something the other day that uh, I forgot what the exact numbers were, but the concept was basically the I think there's maybe two, three percent electric vehicles right now in the United States, if that just goes up to like, I forgot, and don't quote me on this, but it was something like if it goes to 12 or 15%, there's quite literally not enough copper. Like that, like that's literally not possible based on the amount of copper that we have available to us. And e even with the stuff that has not yet been mined, the, the, the copper that we know about. So I don't know if those are the exact numbers, but that, that's the concept, that there's no way that you get to this world where we are all driving around in electric cars. Uh, that, that, is, that literally is not possible unless we get more copper. And the way you get more supply is you increase the price. That's the way the free market works. And so the price would have to be much, much higher than wherever it's trading right now. Let's just say $3.50. You're talking about copper at who knows, I don't, you know, $10, $12 to incentivize uh, enough holes being dug in the ground in order to fulfill that demand. How can an average person take advantage of this commodity super cycle? Have you ever had David Ranson on? No. He'd be a great guest for you. He's one of these guys. He, he's like a dinosaur. He studied under Milton Friedman. 
<laughs> and so the guy much. is a gem. He has charts going back to like the 1850s. I'm like, David, you oh, are, he is like a gold chart, a commodities chart. And, and when yeah. I heard you see a commodity super cycle, he's not in sort of the camp, the Jim Rogers, Rick Rule camp. He was just a guy who studied at University of Chicago, has a great uh, newsletter, HCWE. And it's like, I don't know how I found him. I had, I had a listener who said, you really got to have this guy on. And he was just a wealth of information. And he also believes, he likens uh, the 70s to the period we are in right now. Mm. Kind of the initial drop was like 72, 73, then a rally, then kind of this stagflation. He said, one of the only asset classes to go up during that period was commodities. And he has charts and everything from gold to this to that. Now, he doesn't use charts like these cycles guys that are deterministic. So mm. he's humble about his about the future, but he'd be an interesting guest for you. But he has these charts. I don't know. He got from some, you know, the British library, the, you know, the Queen's library. I don't know where he got this stuff. Are you Chicago? But he also kind of makes a commodities case. Um, so he kind of has this not an all-weather portfolio, but sort of his version. He calls it the star portfolio, and you have so much in treasuries, so much in S&P, so much in, you've heard these things, you know, kind of lazy portfolios. And he advocates that kind of the commodities ETF, the GSCI will, you know, although it's kind of been kind of sucked for 10 years, he thinks that it should go up. What, how do you think um, the average person can take advantage of this? Well, as far as uranium, I think your only pure play there is going to be the Sprott Physical Uranium Trust. That's the only one I know of. Um, it, it, outside of that, I think it gets pretty technical. And for the average Joe and Jane, it might be rather difficult when you're starting to analyze uranium uh, producers and whatnot. As far as the other... Do you like Camco? Like just buy a percent? Oh, I don't know that one. Or... or uh... Now, some of these uranium ETFs have... Um, I, I personally wouldn't do a uranium ETF because I, I don't know that that's the purest play. And, and for uranium itself, I would you consider that... You want to be in the, metal, in the uh, natural resource, not in derivatives. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I like to set up my portfolio in something I call 10-80-10. And uh, it's, this isn't investment advice or anything, but just... That's the way I like to set things up personally. And the reason there is I've got 10% in what I consider insurance. So that would be physical gold. And I've got 80% in investments. And the way I define an investment is something that pays me to own it. And then another 10% in speculative assets where I think that there's good asymmetry. So uranium would fall into that speculative category. So I'm not really expecting to get paid. And therefore, I want the purest play possible and that would likely be that Sprott Uranium Trust, like I said. Now, answering your other question, though, with the the play on overall commodities that are a little more straightforward, I like a lot of the producers there because I want to get paid. I, I just I, I want that dividend yield, and that's one thing that's great, especially if you can get and you can buy when commodities are are hated or when there's panic, like we saw in March of 2020, which I think we might get in 2024, especially if the yield curve is correct which it has been pretty much every time since 1950. 
So there could be this great buying opportunity. Let's use copper as an example. Let's say right now it's trading at 350. Well, whenever it gets uh, adjusted for inflation down below 250, that's always uh, when it's quote unquote cheap. So let's just assume that we were able to get copper down there. I'd try to buy copper producers that were paying a good dividend yield, park those in the portfolio. One of the main reasons I do that is because I like that cash flow. Um, and one of the main things that the cash flow does, in addition to just paying you, which is great, is it eliminates the risk of becoming a motivated seller. And this is something that I learned very quickly in real estate. You you, you always want to be the buyer that's taking an ad, advantage of a motivated seller. You never want to be the motivated seller because that's when you're going to take a massive haircut. And if you're, and so if you've got a property, let's say, uh, land where it's not paying you to own it, well, if you want that liquidity, if you got to get rid of it, then all of a sudden you're put into a position where you're going to pretty much take the only offer. And if that's the only offer on the table, then you're the, the buyer's going to be able to name their price. And you're going to be incentivized to do that because it's not cash flowing. Now, if you had an actual property that was cash flowing, although you'd want a specific price and you'd want that liquidity, you could be far more patient because you're collecting $2,000 a month in rent. You see, so I always wanted to create the the largest percentage of my portfolio as something that just pays me, you know, quarterly or every single month. So I'm never in a position of having to be a motivated seller. And it also achieves the objectives of taking emotion out of the equation as much as possible. Because if your entire portfolio is, let's just say, Bitcoin, my goodness gracious, can you imagine how stressful that would be for most people? They would be looking at the price of Bitcoin. They'd probably have an app on their phone that just tells them the real price of Bitcoin. And every single time they touch their phone, it would probably show them the real price, you know, to where they just get completely fixated on it. And you know that that's not the way to invest wisely. (laughs) That's going to get you whipsawed into making emotional, irrational decisions. And as human beings, that's what we're prone to. So if you've got the majority of the portfolio paying you to own it, you really don't care what the price is doing. Is the price going up or down? Well, I don't really care. This is like those rental properties that I had. I was collecting my $1,000 a month in rent. Now, is the price going up or down? I don't know. I haven't even checked. I don't even care. Is the renter paying the, the, the rent payment? That's all I care about. You see? So it, that's another reason I really, really like it is because it helps take as much emotion as possible out of the equation. And it helps you focus on that cheap, expensive dynamic instead of, you know, what direction is the price going? So uh, that's my, my, uh, my long answer to a short question is I'm going to be looking at the, the commodity producers in an effort to get that dividend yield to build that 80% of the portfolio that's constantly paying me. And that's great. So we're from like the same, it's same intellectual tree though. So I love listening to you because there's a lot of similarities. Do you like even the market wizards comment? I was just looking at the market wizards chart from the book in the eight. Is it the eighties? Well, I think the first one came out in the late eighties. And then I think he had a couple more that came out in the nineties, uh, but the original one that he did was the one with Jim Rogers. The book on the the chapter on Elliott Wave, even. Anyway, so if you go back to page 138 in the book on Elliott Wave, this is kind yeah. of scary about next year. The way this set up, they were, for some reason, this guy was taking the chart from page 138 in the book 
and saying that basically the setup today is a classic, you know, one, two, three, four, five. You know what I'm talking about with the waves? I'm not familiar with them, but I, I've heard of them. Basically, you know, if you look like the Fibonacci to numbers market wizards, yeah, some of, it's, some of it's like BS, but, you know, um, the guy was saying the setup in the NASDAQ looks very similar to kind of the classic Elliott wave. So even this little correction we've had yeah, might lead to a rally November, December to January, early February. And that mm. might be the point to sell into where then people finally say, hey, we're at a recession. We have that major correction that even you're talking about. It's similar that you see all these people coming at it from a different angle, but different convergences. Yeah, 1980, uh, the... Uh, the part was from Market Wizards from a guy named Kovner. I don't know if you remember that part, but oh, Bruce Kovner. Yeah, Kovner. Yeah, yeah. That me. that guy, that guy's a proper G. <laughs> I, I've 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 know quite a few uh, hedge fund managers, and I know that's a name that even my hedge fund managers guys always reference as like one of their intellectual mentors. So Kovner. And and this is a, nobody would ever hear this guy, right? Except for these obscure references in kind of Market Wizard's book. So the guy goes back to the book and say, if you look at the waves, the waves are almost perfect, perfectly descriptive of the NASDAQ where it is. And then mm. after early next year, you might have some of a crash, which I guess, are you thinking we might have a crash next year in the market? Is that That'll take commodities out too? Yeah, that would make a lot of sense to me just based on the inversion of the curve. And um, it actually applies to what you're saying with the NASDAQ going up into 2024 and then maybe having some problems. The reason I say that is the market, and this is the S&P 500, usually goes down the most once the Fed starts dropping rates. So just to be clear, if we go back to 1950, every single time we have had an inversion where the whole curve's inverted, it, we have had a recession, a hard landing. Uh, there's a little exception there in the 60s, but I don't know that the whole entire curve was inverted. I think it was just the three-month tenure. But uh, for the most part, it's almost 100%. So, and what's interesting is there's two ways for a curve to uninvert. Number one, you can have long-term rates go up, which would be what they call a bear steepener, or you can have short-term rates go down. And 100% of the time, we've had an uninversion due to short-term interest rates going down. And that is because the Fed is dropping rates because let's just say the stuff has hit the fan. And if you look at a chart of the S&P 500, you can see that it doesn't necessarily go down, 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 down and then as soon as the Fed drops rates, then all of a sudden you get that rebound and it goes up and up and up. That's what most people would expect. But it's actually not true. Once the, the, the market actually usually goes up and up and up until the Fed drops rates. And then once the Fed drops rates, then it really goes down and it has its maximum down move, I think on average of about 25%. And then after a few months of the Fed taking rates you know, let's say down to zero or 1% or wherever they take rates, then you usually start to have that rebound. So you can use the uninversion of the curve as kind of a proxy 
or when you might want to pay more attention to the market and potentially even start to get greedy with whatever it is on your watch list. So that's kind of what I'm doing with commodities right now. I'm sitting back, I'm looking at uh, you know these long-term macro dynamics with the curve inversions. And I'm saying, you know what? I'm very happy being patient. I'm very happy being in T-bills right now and just rolling those over for your dry powder. You're getting paid 5.5% on that. Instant liquidity. You've got none of the counterparty risk that you would have with the banking system, with Silicon Valley Bank, Signature, First Republic, et cetera. And then just waiting to see how this curve plays out. And what would kind of get me to second guess my base case is if we have that bear steepener because we've never had that before. That would indicate to me that maybe, just maybe, the Fed has orchestrated a no landing or a soft landing, which to be very, very clear, they've never done in the past. They have never done that. They did it once that you could kind of say they had a a rate hiking cycle that didn't result in a recession. And that was in the mid-1990s, but the, the curve was not inverted. How so long that, is it for people? What you've mentioned these terms that people might they might think they know. What is how long has the yield curve been inverted? And what is a yield curve inversion for people who are just kind of like clueless? Yeah, no, no problem. So a yield curve inversion is when short-term interest rates are higher than long-term interest rates with US Treasury maturities. So right now, as an example, the Fed funds rate, which is the overnight rate that they set, is right around 5.25%. But you've got the 10-year Treasury yield trading at 4.9%. So that that's a very... Uh, boy, it's, it's not just rare. It, it's, it's bizarre. And the reason I say it's bizarre is because just using common sense, if you're lending someone money for 10 years, you would demand a much higher interest rate than if you were just lending someone money overnight, even if you annualize that overnight rate, because there's so much more risk, for heaven's sakes. Are you going to get paid back? How much inflation? But what about the people who think, excuse me for cutting it off, but I just, right now, the biggest buyer of like 10-year treasuries that I know of are insurance companies, institutions, all these baby boomers are retiring. They're putting money in things like annuities, things like that. Um, so the market, I, w- I mean, just my kind of, kind of, uh, simple view of it is the reason why that inversion is happening, maybe all these other things, but just, you still have net buyers of 10 year treasuries because, Hey, 4.9 is an attractive rate. You have a manager of uh fixed income at some institution, like an insurance company saying, Hey, I'll lock up my money for 10 years at 4.9. You never know. We might have a recession next year. I mean, what say you about that? Couldn't that be the reason? I think, yeah, I think it's because you have people that have inside information and they're trading that inside information based on probabilities. And the insider information that they're receiving is that we're going to have a global economic slowdown. So if we're going to have a global economic slowdown, what you want as just for alpha or just to hedge your long positions. That's another thing you got to think about, right? Let's just say someone's got, uh, they own the S&P 500, one of these huge hedge fund managers or pension funds, and they own Apple, they own Facebook, they own Google, they own Tesla. Okay, well, you know darn well that if all your inside sources are telling you that the economy is slowing down significantly, the global economy, that could really impact your long positions 
So what are you going to do to hedge that out? You're going to buy the long end of the curve uh, because if the Fed drops rates, you're going to get the most bang for your buck as far as capital appreciation by owning duration. So usually, in, in my opinion, that's why you see the inversion of the curve because the Fed raises rates higher and higher and higher, but then the financial insiders, like as an example, Paul Tudor Jones or Warren Buffett, they look at that and say, whoa, time out here. They may think that inflation is the problem. They may think that growth is the problem, but the more they hike rates, the more I'm buying along into the curve because I know eventually they're going to have to drop rates. And one interesting factoid I'll give your audience here is going back to 2019, the curve actually inverted in August of 2019. And uh, most people say, well, you know, they, it kind of got lucky with the with COVID, you know, it could it could not have predicted that. I completely disagree, because now we have reports coming out uh, by the Republican Party, or you know, take that with a grain of salt. But we have reports coming out saying that the if we had this lab leak, let's say the initial leak would have happened right around August of 2019. And so, in in my view, let's just pretend for a moment that you're Paul Tudor Jones. You're one of these OG guys that have been that, that was in Market Wizards, right? Uh, and you have all the connections with J.P. Morgan, with Jamie Dimon, with Goldman Sachs. You most likely know a lot of the politicians in China as well. So let's just assume for a moment that you're in Wuhan and you're the scientist and you have this leak and you know how bad this could be. What are you going to do? You're going to po- call your local politician. You're going to say, "Hey, this is something you really need to know about." Uh, this is a big deal. And then that local politician is going to call the next politician up and the next politician. And sooner or later, you're going to get to a politician that's going to call Jamie Dimon. And they're going to get on the phone, Jamie Dimon or their or their bankster friend. And they're going to say, hey, just FYI, this is a big deal. Buy me some treasuries, ASAP. No. And then that bankster is going to get on the phone with Jamie Dimon or excuse me, with Paul Tudor Jones. Paul Tudor Jones is going to send out his... No, I assist- think you're absolutely right. I always watch... Um- Prior to his death, I would always look at um, Scott Minard because that guy knew everybody. He was a friend of mine. He wrote, uh, you know, not that we were that. I mean, but we were friendly. I, I hung out with him a couple of times. Um, I would always watch for not what he would say on CNN. but not what people, he does. But people don't realize he buys bonds for institutions. So what was he buying? What was and um, a lot of those guys go back to the 80s and they were all traders for like DLJ. You remember DLJ? Yeah, one of the best ways to do that. I mean, look, Wall Street was such a great movie because it was accurate, in my yeah. opinion. So what was Gordon Gecko doing? He was trading on insider information. And I would argue most of those OG guys like Paul Tudor Jones, sure, they've done well and they're fantastically brilliant, but a lot of their edge was insider information and they're still using that edge today, which is why when they get these secrets that we're going to have a a global pandemic, or in this case, we might have World War III or we might have a global recession, they're buying the long end of the curve uh, to, to get that capital appreciation, if not simply just to hedge their long positions. So that worries me. But so when do you think the uh, crap hits the fan? Well, historically, if you look at the curve, it, the three month and the 10 years, an example, you usually have the official recession. Keep in mind, this is all in hindsight. I, don't, I forgot what the government agency's name is. Ember, 
I think, uh, National Bureau of Economic Research, maybe. Um, but there's some, you know, four-letter acronym, government uh, uh, institution that officially names when we've had a recession, but it's always in hindsight. So if you look at when uh, the recession actually hits, it's almost always after the curve is no longer inverted. And so that means, you know, the, the Fed dropping rates because something has hit the fan. We, you've had some sort of crash, some sort of crisis. And going back to the 1950s, we've got almost a thousand batting average on the yield curve. And I think it's because of the reasons we were just talking about. So what that tells me is that there's not, there's never a certainty. I want to be very, very clear. We're only talking about probabilities here, but the probability is very high that going into 2024, we have a hard landing because on average, going back to your original point here, once we have that three month and that 10 year inversion, you usually have between 18 months and 24 months before the recession actually starts. And where are we right now? We're right around 18 months or so. So I would say, I would expect this to play out sometime in 2024, although although we need to realize that that can be uh, prolonged to a significant degree, especially in the United States, because of the additional savings that people have as a result of PPP and stimulus checks not having to pay their student loan uh, for a long period of time, not having to pay their mortgage. Uh, I was just doing a story today on how the net worth of uh, people under 35 has gone up by 142% since 2019. Wow. And so you've got a lot of this additional purchasing power, let's say, as a result of the government's intrusion into the economy, which I would argue is a government distortion, that at some point in time, you're going to have to pay the fiddler. But my point there is if usually you have a recession 18 months to 24 months after that inversion, we could see it happen then, but it might be prolonged a little bit later because of all this additional aggregate demand that's been built up in the system that we still need to work through. So when was it first inverted? 18 months ago? About 18 months ago, yeah. Yeah, no, I would agree. I'd say more 24. But it's interesting because there's another chart that one of these chartist guys who plots, same he has plotted that every recession, and this actually did the same indicator as August 19, that when you start having the unemployment rate, so we're still at unemployment lows. Mm, Right, right. Have you seen this? Like that, it's not that unemployment has to be very high, like 9%. If we go from- No, it just has to- It just has to go go across, it's like 50 moving average or something. Yeah, Yeah. it has to go up just a tick. Mm. So what's the unemployment rate now? I think 3.8. So if we go to like four- that might be a sign to sell equities or three, nine. And he has this interesting chart. He goes back to like a hundred years too. It's like some of these guys with their charts. So nothing's deterministic. We're all trying to figure out stuff. Um, But I think those are signals that are very easy to watch that your audience can pay attention to and they don't have to allocate much time to it. Just watch for that unemployment rate to go up over 4% and just watch for the curve to no longer be inverted. And yeah, then you those know are two that's things when you really need equities. to be paying attention. So um, we're going to wrap up, but my biggest thing I wanted to talk to you about, but I didn't talk about is commercial real estate. And mm. if I'm looking at, I'm an owner of commercial real estate that I bought in 20, 
12 or something like it was a good time to buy commercial real estate it's like yeah. half what it's worth today um i'm buying it more as a long-term hold you know just to get paid while i wait so kind of your theory of the 80 10 10 i love it yeah. get paid while you wait i don't care about if it gets cut in half i'm, I'm getting paid right um the thing that worries me is the commercial real estate um Guys like us, guys who have businesses, successful businesses, people like you in the tw in 2012. Now you got out in 2020, but a lot of people went in in 2020, and they bought five year arms and things like that. And I use as the poster child for this, Grant Cardone. You know the guy on Instagram, and sure. um, no, not to negatively view it, but I, once people start buying, I get clients tell me, "Oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna buy a." $2 million apartment complex. I'm going to buy a $10 million apartment complex. These are people who never bought. Real estate is very cost intensive. And when you own apartment complexes, these people are doing it for 7% rates of return net after yeah. expenses. Those are the best people in the country, 10%. The average Joe, even I would argue somebody like you or me, who are then trying to buy commercial real estate as a part-time job, um, who bought in 2020 because rates were at a record low. You could buy a five-year arm for what, like 3%, something very low on a commercial. I, I could have bought a $100 million property. I probably should have in 2020 for 10 million down or 20 million down and 3%. I think that's the next crash, but I don't know when the timing hits. Um, well, I don't. Yeah, I think nobody does because you don't know when that debt's going to have to be rolled over. That's the key. But we right? know 2025 is, is when they come due. And well, we no, this year, I think in, uh, if my memory serves me well, I just did a video on this the other day. I think it's like 800 billion comes due in 24. Uh, 24 yeah. and then like 1.4 trillion in 2025, something like that. Yeah, that's what I meant though. It's it's coming. I have another guy who's a artist guy I bet on. He says, you might not hit the bottom until two years after in yeah. commercial real estate. It takes a while for that excess to siphon off. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I would. And I think a bigger concern would be the banks. Yeah. So because we, the banks are, are really crucial to the overall economy. And uh, you could, let's just say for a moment, the only person that took a haircut on the commercial real estate were the real estate owners. Well, that would be bad, but that wouldn't be catastrophic. Uh, unfortunately, they're not the only entity that takes a haircut because those properties go back to the bank and the bank has to fire sell them. And you've already got banks that are, are in trouble with the asset side of their balance sheet due to interest rates increasing just on treasuries, which is the safest asset for heaven's sakes. So if they're having problems with interest rates going up on treasuries, you know what are the problems that uh, they're going to face when they're taking back all these properties that are now worth... 20 cents in the dollar. And what that translates into is tighter money, right? You have credit going down. And that this is something we've seen for the last year. Uh, credit tightening, you have credit going down. And if you have credit conditions uh, tightening to that degree, it's very, very, very difficult to avoid a recession. And if you do go into recession uh, for other reasons, it's going to exacerbate the recession is going to make it a lot worse. I mean, and in part, that's what we saw during the Great Depression in the 1930s was the banks just going bust and that decreases M2 money supply by 30% because effectively the banks are the money supply, 
right? When, when you consider that most of the cash is the liability of a bank that could go bust. And so, sure, the Fed might step in and save the day and whatnot, but uh, they only do that as a reactionary function. They never get ahead of that curve. And uh, that's what the insiders are telling us right now. And that's what the insiders are betting on based on that yield curve. And so that would be my, my bigger concern with commercial real estate. It's not just the investors, but uh, the banks that hold the paper. And do you and think- the broad economy. But isn't that already reflective? I mean, I'm looking at a, a good regional bank, uh, like, a, like actually a well-capitalized one right now, going from 60, 70 bucks a share to 28. Isn't that sort of already priced in? Or do you think they have much more? Yeah, it is. But what you have to realize is the systemic risk, right? Because all banks depend on other banks for liquidity. So Silicon Valley Bank is a great example of this, right? Uh, they didn't have to go bust. They had all these assets that uh, hold to maturity. They would have been fine. But what happened is all the other banks looked at them and said, no, I don't want anything to do with your balance sheet. Uh, for XYZ reason. Therefore, we're not going to give you the liquidity that you need and we're going to determine that you go bust. So we, we have to remember that, that if money gets tight enough and going back to our good friend, Jeff Snyder, he calls it deflationary money. So if the risk in the overall banking system gets high enough, then all of a sudden everything freezes. And no matter how good your balance sheet is, you're going to have some big, big problems. And that's exactly what we saw during the GFC. So I'm not saying that there aren't good opportunities right now in the banking system because of the prices going down, but you've got to make sure that you're being paid the appropriate amount for the risk that you're taking. You've got to make sure that you're analyzing the risk reward properly and not just, you know, looking at so a 20 So would you be out of banks price. entirely? Like just I'm sell sorry. all your bank stocks? Are you out of banks entirely? Yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't want to be in the, the banks right now at all. You know, uh, it's maybe, maybe J.P. Morgan. But on that note, I'm sure you saw in the news just the other day that Jamie Dimon just sold a million shares, yes. a million shares of J.P. Morgan, worth a hundred and forty million dollars. And their wow. PR department came out and tried to make it seem as though he wasn't worried about the bank or he's not worried about the banking system, that it's just about him retiring. Retiring? Look, if you were bullish on JP Morgan in the banking system and you're Jamie Dimon, even if you were retiring, why would you sell the shares? Exactly. You wouldn't. You wouldn't if that was the best use of capital. So uh, that right there should be a, a red flag from the ultimate insider. And what worries me, you talk about systemic risk. I always talk about... Um, in New Jersey, we have a bank called uh, Republic Bank, which is mm. not First Republic. Have you followed that story? Wall Street I know, Journal well, did a study yeah. on, uh, did a, did a uh, expose on them, and then boom, they crashed. And then Republic Bank, just because it had the same name, <laughs> people thought Republic was First Republic, yeah, yeah, even yeah. though they had a great number of deposits. Uh, Stephen A. Cohen, talk about bankster. Yeah, talk about insider. Republic right. Bank is now six cents a share. And oh, then, wow. And then the insiders are, are infusing $35 million into that bank. Um, this is a bank, they have branches, they have real estate. That, you know, um, maybe it's that good time to buy thing at six cents a share. But this is like, uh, this is like it should be a $10 stock. It's now six cents. 
Yeah. So at a, but that's a good point that it's all a function of price, right? Yeah. So uh, that's when we always say you buy things when they're cheap. Like I've been talking about the U.S. real estate market and how it's expensive, and or you know, let's use an example: copper or oil. That's why I said that I'm waiting. Uh, to see how the yield curve plays out, to see if we do get this hard landing, to use that as a buying opportunity. But look, if for whatever reason, copper got back down to, let's say, 250, I would be a buyer. Even if I thought that the price might go lower, if we, if let's say we're still in an inversion and we haven't had a recession yet, I would still be a buyer. Why? Because it's cheap for heaven's sakes. Yeah. So to your point, you know, if at six cents a share, if that is cheap, based on certain metrics, then regardless of what you think, you might want to go ahead and buy, just so long as you're cognizant That it of could the go risk. to zero. <laughs> yeah. Or, well, you're co- even if it does go to zero, it still may be a good play if the upside has enough potential. You know, it's all about risk adjusted for reward. And so that, that's what I think uh, in that may be a great opportunity. It may go to zero and it may still be a good opportunity if the upside is let's say a hundred bucks or something like that. Yeah, you're, I'm sure that you know Stephen A. Cohen is cutting some deal, you know, like a Warren Buffett deal. I always love yeah. these guys. They don't have, <laughs> you know. Then you find out like he didn't get the actual common stock. He got this special yeah, preferred yeah, yeah. share that had some right to be a debt, you know. So at the bankruptcy, then he can buy up the real estate at pennies on the, you know. Yeah. And then you see, but anyway, it's... Well, and then it's, he knows that Jamie... And then he's good buddies with Jamie Dimon. And Jamie Dimon over lunch gives him his word that if the bank does go bust, Jamie Dimon will come in and buy them and bail them out to make sure that he gets paid. I mean, let's be honest. that That's how Wall Street that's works. That's how these... Um, it's crazy. Anyway, well, um, we're not we're not recommending you buy or sell anything, specifically that stock. I just thought that was an interesting kind of vignette into this. Six cents. Yeah. And I, mean, I think also it, time horizon is important too, right? So if you're a trader and your time horizon is maybe three, six months, that could be an incredible bet, incredible. But if your time horizon is, let's say, three or four years, then maybe you want to be more cautious because you're paying uh, attention or you're putting a higher emphasis on the yield curve and potential hard landing. Well, this was very fun, George. Hope to have you on again in the future. George Gammon, Rebel Capitalist on YouTube. And I bet you you're glad that you allocate. I just thought about that. I'm I'm going to your YouTube, Rebel Capitalist. And it's funny, the difference between, you know, 3,000 subscribers and 145,000 is you were invested in 2020. You were there doing doing the shows. I remember people were telling me about your work. Uh, anything else you'd like to plug other than the Rebel Capitalist channel and Rebel Capitalist? No, or they can go to the George Gammon channel. That was the first one. That has almost 500,000 uh, subscribers. And oh, yeah, I was people, on Rebel Capitalist channel. Yeah, most people like that because I do whiteboard videos. It kind of helps explain the financial plumbing and kind of walk through the details of what we're talking about. So people not don't just know the news. They actually understand what's happening behind the scenes and how it all works. Yeah, I love your stuff. The only other oh, quick comment is this, because we read the same stuff. You're kind of naturally bearish tilted, not intentionally, but like yeah. Jeff Snyder, right? How do you wreck or Lacey Hunt or this guy or yep, that yep, guy yep. or you? How do you see a financial world, right? That 
from 2008 to the present has really been against all norms of reality, you know, and things continue to go up and Fang Man, Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, Google, Microsoft, Apple, NVIDIA, Tesla. How do you reconcile that if you just buy the S&P in 2008, never sold it, you'd be up way ahead of people like us who are more conservatively minded. Um, Mm. Yeah. And if if you were my buddy that was drunk in the blackjack table and you hit on 19 and got a two, you get 21 and you would have made out like a bandit. But it doesn't necessarily mean that you're betting with the probabilities. So that's what I always encourage people to do is buy things when they're cheap, sell them when they're expensive. And at times I'm very bullish. Like in March of 2020, I was doing whiteboard videos on things that were getting ridiculously cheap. And hey, maybe it's time to panic from a social standpoint. But maybe this is a good opportunity for our portfolios. But you're right. I I, I do uh, naturally kind of have a, a bearish slant. So what I always encourage people to do that watch my YouTube channel is remember that I'm not making predictions with the whiteboard videos or even on the Rebel Capitalist channel. Uh, don't take what I say as a prediction. If I talk about uh, you know the banking system having problems or something like that, all I'm trying to do is point out risks in the current system that you should be cognizant of when you're trying to make decisions and combining this with what you're hearing on the mainstream financial media. Yeah, but I actually like your blackjack analogy. I'm going to use that with clients because that's really the difference between a wise steward of capital. You're not going to make, you know, kind of go with, you're not going to get the top tick or the bottom tick by doing sort of a rules-based 80-10-10 philosophy, but you are going to be able to sleep at night. So I like that. Um, it's a good way to conclude. And your 80, 10, 10. On your 80, by the way, of income investments, do you like dividend bank stocks or only in select? So, so Yes, but yeah, in, especially in that commodity space. And one of the main reasons I really like the commodity space, other than what we discussed, the supply demand dynamics, is it's not going to zero. Yeah. Uh, if, if I buy JP Morgan, you never know, right? <laughs> but if I buy uh, Exxon or something like that, it's it's a very, very low probability that it goes to zero, although the underlying asset could go to negative $38 a barrel. Well, thank you. <laughs> the futures market. <laughs> no, exactly. And then rebel capitalists, uh, which, um, where did people go to find out about Rebel Capitalists Live? Is there a website well, for they that? Go to rebelcapitalistlive.com. The, the next event's going to be in May, but we're not selling tickets yet. So they can just go to the Rebel Capitalist YouTube channel, watch some of the videos. And when we start selling tickets, I'll talk about it. Wonderful. Well, thanks so much and have a great uh, day. It was a fun interview. Yeah. Thanks for having me on.